I think that's for me almost where these messages of good fire have really kind of sprung from where people have gotten, you know, especially Indigenous people, I think more and more are coming forward and just saying kind of like enough. <laughs> like, you know, they I, I've gotten so many messages from people that are like, you know, okay, yeah, we need good fire back on the landscape. Like, what can we do? How can we help? So there's definitely like Matt was saying that component of, you know, we need senior leadership people. And I've seen systems like in the state of Victoria, where, you know, it was a very high up senior guy who just suddenly said, you know, yeah, we're going to do cultural burning now and support communities to be able to do it. And like now that's what they do. That was Dr. Amy Christensen. She's the host of Good Fire, a podcast that explores the social, cultural and ecological importance of fires. For thousands of years, Indigenous people have used fire to improve their environment and their community. More recently, however, because of colonialism and the centralization of power, many of those traditional practices have been made illegal, forcing them to stop or suffer legal repercussions. Today, governmental agencies want to integrate cultural burning into their systems. But Indigenous people are only asking for the autonomy to continue doing what they've done for thousands of years. Matthew Kristoff also joins the conversation. He works on Good Fire with Dr. Christensen. He's also the host of Your Forest, a podcast that explores the natural world through conversations about environmental issues. So here they are, Dr. Amy Christensen and Matthew Kristoff. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. So, Matt, right now there are 100 episodes of the Your Forest podcast. When you first started it, did you think you put that many episodes out? (laughs) <laughs> I didn't even know it was going to like last on for, for a year or a couple of months. So no, I did not think so. It was just, uh, it was a fleeting thought that I thought maybe I could, I could start something that would help me learn more about my interests, about environmental sciences and about my industry, which is forestry. And, uh, yeah, and realistically it was just a selfish way of me learning from people that know what they're talking about. And, uh, it just, yeah, evolved from there and turned into something where I think it actually has some value for people. So it's pretty exciting. But no, I had no idea it was going to go as well as it has. Um, and it's, it is still pretty niche, but it's, it's for being in the industry that it is, I think it does very well. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. And I'm, I'm very surprised that it reached over 100 episodes. Yes. <laughs> and do you remember what that first interview was like? Do you remember if you were green? Were you nervous? Oh, for sure. Absolutely nervous. So the first three episodes was just me and a buddy ranting about sustainability and and the forest industry and that kind of thing. And uh, the first interview I really did was the fourth episode. And I believe it was with Michael Gubbles, who I just did another uh, episode with actually two episodes ago, 107 called Honoring Truth. And uh, we were just talking about truth and reconciliation. We were talking about residential schools and the impacts those have on, on indigenous, indigenous people, which um, was something that I didn't know a lot about at the time. And I've since learned a ton about, obviously, through Good Fire, through Amy, through through other friends of mine and, and through media in general. 
but uh, yeah, I was I was absolutely terrified for that first conversation. But luckily, Michael is is so easygoing and and really kind and and gentle and easy to talk to that it made it very simple to do. So I I enjoyed it. And I think he might be responsible for uh, convincing me to keep it up. <laughs> you know, I've personally experienced so many special moments during conversations like this one that we're having right now, little pieces of wisdom that have stayed with me. Have you had that experience in your conversations where in the course of the conversation, something is said and you just think, wow, that's great. Constantly, constantly. Yeah. All the time. It's, uh, you prepare for all of these episodes and for all this content. And I, tr I try to, each episode is supposed to be this, a concept or an idea that we can discuss and not really a solution, but just, just information for people to, to think on, right? Maybe trying to challenge your ideas of nature, or sustainability or whatever it might be. And I prepare for it a lot. And I have these questions set out that I want to get to kind of like a storyboard sort of thing, but it never goes that way. It always goes somewhere else entirely. And it's the questions themselves are laid out just, to make me comfortable, make me feel like I know that I can navigate this conversation. Mm -hmm. So when these nuggets of truth, these nuggets of realness come out and, and take you by surprise, it's, it's, it's relieving in a way, cause it allows you to really jump more into the conversation and be more in the moment. And yeah, I love it. That's what you want, right? As a podcaster, you want that realness. So yeah, it's, it happens all the time, every episode, multiple times. And I think that's probably why I keep doing it. Yeah, for sure. And and Amy, do you prefer Amy or Dr. Christensen? Amy, please. <laughs> okay, <laughs> awesome. Thanks. In your conversations surrounding forest fires and forest health, have you had any similar enlightening or interesting experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been really privileged um, to be able to speak to a lot of elders and knowledge holders um, across Canada and internationally. And there's a lot of, you know, great things that that I've heard where people just say things that just stick with you. Like even today I had a meeting um, with the Indigenous Peoples Burning Network out of Northern California and they were sharing uh, with me their vision statement um, for, you know, what they want to do as a community. And yeah, it was just amazing. Like instead of the usual, you know, we want to achieve this level of biodiversity or other things, their statement was amazing. Um, actually have i took a picture of it because i thought that it was so good and profound um but yeah it says that their vision is like when our work is successful successful life will be thriving with deer birds mushrooms open prairies grasslands and clear creeks there is laughing children are playing all over all the brushes gone and we can see the river the land all the way down the road has been burned it is like the pre-contact landscape and we are still um, able to truly live off our land. We get that humble and respectful feeling. Our prayers with our ancestors are heard because our connection with the land is growing stronger and stronger. These uh, prayers are carried by the smoke and answered by the fire. People are leading and the agencies support it. Anyways, I just thought that that was so beautiful. Yeah, that's great. Of their their statement. And so, yeah, there's things like that that come up all the time. And I, I just feel like privileged to be able to, you know, be in those spaces and to, to hear um, from all these uh, amazing people. Absolutely. And, and I wonder if um, Amy and Matt, if you have anything to say about like, you know, how long does it take you to get to those moments? And do you think about 
those moments when you're writing your questions? <laughs> well, let's just say Matt and I, I think I scared Matt at first when we started doing our <laughs> podcast a little bit. I don't know, Matt, because I am much more like, I guess, naive about podcasting and more just wanted to record kind of conversations with friends. So the first few episodes we had, yeah, Matt asked me, okay, so like, what are our questions? And I was like, oh, we'll just like wing it. Yeah. <laughs> and Matt was kind of like, oh gosh, like, I don't know, like, I can I have some background on this? Well, it was So more, I don't know, Matt. <laughs> it was more that um, I was so unfamiliar with the, the landscape of cultural burning and indigenous knowledge and that kind of thing because that's not my reality although i always found it interesting i never found a pathway to learn about it mm -hmm. and so when you approached me she 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 approached me and asked me like yeah i want to do this podcast about cultural burning and i was like cool what's cultural burning <laughs> <laughs> and then from there we go into our first episode and she's like, yeah, we're just going to record. I'm like, okay, but what are we talking about? She's like, cultural burning. I'm like, yeah, we still, you haven't really, we, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so yeah, it took, but uh, I've, I've learned so much through the course of that, that first season that we did and uh, just come to appreciate it so much that, yeah, I think I feel more comfortable with it now, but I still feel the need to uh, just listen more often than, than try and provide my own input. Cause it's just, it's, it's a, a message that doesn't get a lot of light in the public sphere. Mm -hmm. And so I, th I think it's important for, you know, the white guy in the conversation to maybe shut his trap. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and Amy, how would you describe cultural burning? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a big question. <laughs> but I think, you know, for my uh, nation and the nations that I've worked with, it's basically using fire on the landscape in different ways to achieve um, certain things that you need to be able to continue your cultural practices on the land. And so every nation um, burns in different ways and at different times um, and for different reasons. So mm -hmm. sometimes people come to me and want like a really, um, you know, uh, w like one answer basically, like for Canada, for example, like, okay, well, why do nations burn? Well, I know with one nation, like he Dr. Henry Lewis did a study with them in the 1970s, and he found that there were like hundreds of reasons why that community burned for, um, on the landscape for, for all sorts of different reasons. And so, I mean, that's one nation in Canada. And if you, you know, amplify that out, it's, it's pretty complex, but I think that the the main thing is, you know, it was just so that we as people, like we feel like um, we have, a, a, I guess, a, a like uh, it's been handed down to us a responsibility from creator to basically use fire to improve the environment for us, but also for our relatives. So um, animals, uh, trees, plants um, th that we use in, in cultural practices. So yeah, I think that that's kind of the the short of it. I mean, for in the area um, where I grew up, like in the boreal forest, probably the main reasons for burning are, are to improve grass growth um, and to kind of clean up the forest, you often hear people say, so that animals can move easier. And then the other reason is for berries. Um, burning, like the low intensity burns that that um, our communities do often uh, really produce nice berry patches and clean those up. Mm -hmm. You know, I listened to your episode on your forest and something that stuck with me 
was when you talked about the importance of fire to the preservation and even restoration of indigenous cultures and identity. And I know we're, we're, we're kind of dipping our toes into it right now with that last question, but could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, for many indigenous people, like when colonization happened, there was not only like, you know, this devaluation of, of indigenous knowledge, but also a removal of indigenous people from the landscape and basically and like where we had to stop kind of all cultural practices. And I actually just looked up, you know, when in Alaska, um, you know, fire suppression started uh, the, those type of campaigns. And I think it was actually in 1907 was the first one. And in 1926, two natives were arrested for burning and put in jail for uh, 90 days for trying to burn in their territories. And so when we compile that, so not being able to like practice burning on the land with all the other things like residential schools and being moved into a reserve system and having to have passes to leave and not being able to do your ceremonial practices, it all really, um, you know, adds up to devalue the person. I don't know how mm -hmm. else to say that. But uh, so I think, you know, what we're seeing right now is with all this trauma in many of our communities that like, I think lots of us are seeing as fire as a way back to kind of reconnect with the land. So, you know, it's it's a way for people to go out and not only like to help benefit the landscape by getting fire there and reducing the fuels, but as a way just to get people out on the land and learning about plants and learning about that connection, which is so important for many of our youth who've been really disconnected from that. I mean, myself personally, like I've, uh, my family's probably been disconnected from the practice for over a hundred years. Uh, so I've been really lucky um, to learn from other people who, you know, kind of continued in the background. And that's one thing I often hear from, you know, fire agencies and other folks or, or people who, you know, comment mm -hmm. on my, yeah. my uh, news articles that come out is they're like, oh, yeah, that was great, like in the 1800s, but it's not applicable to today as if Indigenous people, you know, aren't still alive today and don't still see the landscape around them. Um, like, yeah, we we know and we know that the practices that we did in the 1800s obviously have to change, but there's that resilient knowledge system that's still there. Mm hmm. I mean, I think that that's the whole idea of decolonization, right, is, mm -hmm. you know, this new idea that's becoming more popular or, you know, we often hear indigenizing different things. Um, and th that's the idea is that, you know, you look at, I mean, the, the whole idea of fire suppression and things that came over, those came from a European mindset. So it was people, you know, that were living um, in different environments with different values um like i often hear sometimes well europeans burn too and i mean that's true but many of the europeans who ended up settling in canada they were burning for agricultural reasons so to produce a monoculture right whereas indigenous burning practices were mostly for biodiversity and dr kira hoffman one of my colleagues has just published a big study on that how indigenous burning practices internationally um, are really uh, promote biodiversity in many different ways in many different landscapes and so I think that that's the this whole thing with um, it's almost like decolonizing fire or you know the land back they all kind of have that 
that same idea, like none of us, you know, want to go back, you know, uh, people sometimes say too, you know, like, oh, you want to like shun modern society or, you know, like, oh, you're typing this on your iPhone, you should be grateful. And it's like, well, nobody, like everybody knows that society has advanced, like in, you know, in certain ways, but at the same time, there's a, a lot of indigenous knowledge that is so helpful um, to, you know, current crises that we're seeing today. And fire is just one of those things, like with the fires we've seen in BC this year. I mean, that lots of that is just due to fuel loading um, from mismanagement of forests. How often do you run into like misrepresentation in media? Yeah, I would say, you know, that there's, I don't know, there's, it's been a bit better this year, I would say, but there's um, a real tendency, I think, for media to kind of romanticize Indigenous burning practices. So lots of times, you know, when I do an interview or something, you know, they want me to kind of, you know, just talk about how it reduces fuels and, and other things, like kind of the the nice part of it. But then the second we start talking about, you know, power or Indigenous sovereignty or having to get land back, those things, those always get edited out of the conversation <laughs> quite quickly. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of what I find a bit frustrating because we can't really talk about bringing fire back to the landscape by Indigenous people unless we address like the issue that Indigenous people um, are in control of such a small amount of territory in Canada. Like I think it's something like 1%. So how can you make, you know, a meaningful impact on the landscape if you don't address those more complex issues? So I would say that that's like a, a media issue. The other one would be kind of like I was talking about earlier, this kind of pan-Indigenous approach where, you know, they'll just kind of want to talk to one person as if that's, you know, the like me, for example, that I can speak for all Indigenous nations in Canada about burning. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's been interesting. But I mean, though, the one thing is that it always seems like whenever there's um, big events that happen. So in like Australia, uh, in California and here, whenever we have really bad fire events and there's fatalities or other things, people really kind of start looking for another way or another solution. So people kind of seem happy with the status quo until there is big issues. And then that's usually, you know, when they start coming around and asking about cultural burning practices or other things. And there's a bit of a, you know, I'm always hesitant to talk about it because there's always the risk of kind of appropriation of our knowledge too. Um, and yeah, I don't know if you want me to get into chatting about that too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I think one of the things that we found again, like I said before, is this kind of romanticism of, of burning. And then uh, I would say too that many of the agencies that um, the nations that I've worked with have been involved in, you know, they're interested kind of in the idea of cultural burning. But again, they're they're more interested, I think, kind of in um, absorbing cultural burning practices within their own agency and their current power structures. Whereas Indigenous people like are connected to cultural burning, like we need to be there and, and be there making the decisions. And I, I think I've said before that, you know, lots of times we hear like, oh, we need an Indigenous person to come in and teach us about this. But it's like, no, you, we need Indigenous people not to be teaching, but Indigenous people to be the ones making the decision. So like not only informing decision makers, but actually being in that role of decision making. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I'm hoping moving forward, you know, that we can start to to look at that in California. They're doing some really good work now where 
the nations are really kind of stepping forward with a united front um, and trying to get fire back on the landscape. Same with the Fire Sticks Alliance um, in Australia. And we've had them on the Good Fire podcast, both groups. And yeah, they're just so strong in you know, what they want to do and and um, how they, they want to do it. But I, it's interesting because all the um, barriers to cultural burning are very similar, even internationally, with trying to get Indigenous fire back on the land. Mm-hmm. You know, Amy, earlier you mentioned certain things that can be left out of media, you know, during interviews and in the final product, it's just not there. And that reminded me of earlier before the conversation started, Matthew and I were talking about the worth in listening to a long form conversation. So so conversations like this where very few things are edited out and everything is heard in context to the listener. I wonder if either you or Matt have also experienced that where um, you're able to put an idea in full out on display or out to the public in mass, like with the podcast. Yeah. So, I mean, I can speak to the reason why I wanted to do good fire mostly was to kind of have a bit of control over the message that was getting out there and to Mm -hmm. give indigenous peoples a platform to be able to speak without someone kind of, you know, editing down their thoughts. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I really felt like, you know, I was saying I get asked lots of questions. There's really kind of a lack of understanding generally about cultural burning. So I often get, you know, people want ask me like a quick question, um, you know, like, oh, can you explain that to me? How would that work with our agency? Those type of things that really you know, it's a much more nuanced, longer discussion. And I think that's kind of the indigenous way for many people is that, you know, we're oral people and talking, um, you know, and telling stories is really kind of how we share lessons. And other, and so the podcast, the Good Fire podcast has really kind of allowed um, my indigenous colleagues, I think, and given them a platform to really be able to express themselves and, you mm-hmm. know, what their nations are doing, how they're using fire, how it's important to them. And then in a way that's easy for people to kind of listen to, you know, at their convenience <laughs> as well. Mm-hmm. If they only have like five, 10 minutes here or there, they can kind of pick back up on it. So yeah, I think that the the podcast platform has been really um, good for that. And also, I would say, too, I've heard of a bunch of different universities that are using uh, the podcast. So instead of like a non-Indigenous prof kind of teaching about Indigenous fire, they'll just play kind of one of the podcast episodes so that they can hear an Indigenous person speaking about it. So mm-hmm. for me, that's been pretty cool. I don't know, Matt, if you have additional thoughts. Uh like as far as as things being taken out of context and that kind of thing, I don't really run into it. And and Amy's really the front and center for Good Fire. I'm just I'm just support. But um, yeah, I have I haven't experienced a whole lot of that. But I know I hear it through Amy all the time. And there's a lot of frustration, and even through the guests on the Good Fire podcast. And I'm excited to get the second season going to mm-hmm. re-engage myself in the in the ideas. Um, even with them, you hear the same thing across the globe. The same frustrations. The same concerns the same issues everywhere and it's it's something that happened to me i think it was the the seventh or eighth episode of good fire 
where I, I mentioned this, I was like, it's weird that all you guys from Australia to the Amazon to Canada to the States, everywhere, it's all having the same problems. And Amy's like, well, yeah, that's colonialism for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, right. Yeah, that makes total sense. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's been different for me. But I, but yeah, I definitely through through Amy, I, I noticed these things for sure. Yeah, I think that one thing I've really noticed is that people like nowadays kind of want sensationalism. <laughs> so, you know, they want like a big headline or a really big quote or, you know, or, or like, you know, that kind of quick information. And so I think with the podcast, it really allows us to kind of really in depth explore some of these uh, thoughts and, mm-hmm. you know, things that Indigenous people are experiencing with fire. And like I said, to be able to tell stories that other people can listen to and say, oh, yeah, I've experienced that or here's how I can apply that lesson in my own life. And yeah, I think that's just an indigenous way of knowing. And so the podcast has really, um, yeah, worked well into that. But I will say the one thing is Matt has always been concerned about the length because as indigenous (laughs) people (laughs) and like my colleagues that we have on Good Fire and even myself, you know, we can we can go on and on because we're very passionate about it and have a lot that we want to discuss and say. So that was one thing that we kind of ran into was, you know, oh, my goodness, how long do we actually want these things to be? <laughs> yeah, we ended up leaving them basically as they are, unless we covered a topic too many times in an episode, we might edit out five minutes here. But it was it ended up being pretty much completely full context, same as as my Your Forest podcast stuff. I just, you get to the point where you, you want to try and edit stuff out and you realize that that would be taking away from the conversation and somehow, so you end up leaving it. Two things that come to mind are patient and thoughtful. When I, I have listened to these two podcasts and I think that length has a lot to do with that because hard answers are also hard won. And they're not easy to get to, and it takes time rather than um, maybe throwing sound bites and certain quotes into fit with whatever narrative you're trying to to reach with maybe a more traditional news outlet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I think, agree. I think you're right. Yeah, it's 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 easy to people want that that quick and dirty version right like oh well i read this five minute article and now i'm an expert so you can't tell me (laughs) you can't tell me otherwise and it's that that classic saying i don't remember the exact quote but the paraphrase is you know the the more you learn the less you realize you know right exactly yeah yeah and i think too the best indigenous knowledge holders or elders that i've had that have been teachers for me you know the way they talk and tell stories it's you know, they take their time getting through the stories and throughout, you know, there's lessons embedded. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's, you know, you can't just do that. Like you said, in a soundbite, you need to be able to kind of hear the whole story. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I'm going to do my best to describe the Good Fire podcast. And afterwards, you two can tell me what I got wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a 10 episode podcast, at least the first season is, that aims to reestablish forest fires as a thing of cultural importance and environmental health rather than one of indifference and destruction. Amy, what do you think? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that that sounds good. So it's the idea. Yeah, I agree. Like the idea of putting 
fire with purpose back on the landscape. Um, yeah, at the right time. Mm -hmm. And why Good Fire? Why the name Good Fire? You know, for Indigenous peoples across Canada that I've spoken to, you know, they uh, and I found it really different from like non-Indigenous peoples that I've worked with is that they always seem to have this kind of dichotomy in their mind of, you know, well, you know, that's a bad fire that's happening over there that's threatening communities or that's burning too hot um, and basically destroying the ecosystem. And then, you know, this idea that there's good fires that can clean, clean things up and um, so I've always really been drawn to that idea. And I've, I've actually heard people say to me like, oh, well, all fires are good fire. There's no such thing as a bad fire because, you know, fires are natural in the, you know, quote unquote wilderness. And I just say, no, that's not true. There are bad fires. Like, look at what's happening when fires are burning into communities. Um, that's bad when they're burning tens of thousands um, of acres. That's bad like in the middle of you know a 50 degree celsius weather um which i think would be like about 120 or 130 fahrenheit for you guys um like those are bad fires they're basically obliterating everything in their path and for the forest to regrow and regenerate it might take you know 50 100 150 years so generations and for indigenous people like that's not acceptable <laughs> to have that type of loss on the landscape um mm -hmm. you know that can really impact communities and you know and our ability to carry out our cultural practices so for me um you know that's kind of where this idea of good fire comes and uh, it's it to me too like it's so funny because my daughter was saying the other day like we were watching a, a thing in bc and all of a sudden she just turned to my mom and said like yeah, you know, those things happening over there, those are the bad fires, but the fires that we do on our on our farm here on our mm -hmm. land, those are the good fires. Like those are the ones where we help the grass grow and it, it makes things better. And I, and she's 5. So I was yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. know, if she can understand this mm -hmm. whole concept, you know, I'm sure that other people can understand too, like you know, higher up, you know, important senior level people. Uh, yeah. So anyways, it's just, it was really interesting to me to hear like kids are so amazing for indigenous people. Like most indigenous cultures believe that like our kids and our elders are the closest to creator. And I think it just shows me that like for kids, it's just still a simple concept, you know, mm -hmm. that you can use fire in good ways. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that kids and youth have this really incredible ability to just say, exactly what they're seeing and what they're experiencing and they say it around adults who are just jaded by the world and we've had <laughs> yeah. so much experience you know with the world and um other input in our lives and then you know children or youth say something and, and you're like wow it it is that simple you're right yeah i find like one of my colleagues too um dr Bryony tower she's in australia and she works with children there on bushfire education. And she often talks about like, for kids, fire can be like a really abstract thing. Like it's it's hard for them to, you know, imagine kind of bigger things, but they're so good at their local um, element. And I think as adults, sometimes we tend to forget about like our local situation and look like bigger picture, bigger picture. And so I hear sometimes like, oh, the fire landscape problem is just way too complex for us to ever be able to do anything with, about 
you know, but then when you work with a kid, you know, they're just looking at the field around their house or, you know, they're looking Mm -hmm. at a much smaller picture, which is important because that's where fire matters, right? The idea of Indigenous fire is about a lot of people using fire in a good way on the landscape. Um, You know, it's not just about one expert, you know, doing it for everyone. Mm -hmm. I think the thing you said about uh, children and, and, and elders being the closest to creator it's you can you can even tie it back to just being able to live in the moment mm-hmm. right like children mm-hmm. don't know how to worry about the future right like they don't mm-hmm. they haven't developed that mental capacity yet and then elders have probably learned from their experience and their wisdom and have learned that i'm the happiest when i'm in the moment right and we're us as as somewhere in that middle range we tend to be constantly constantly thinking about what's next i gotta i gotta do this i gotta answer these emails i gotta do this meeting what about this concept and we never have the opportunity to just slow down and breathe and just think about the now and it's yeah it's it's almost as simple as that right it's it's interesting well and that's the goal right as we get older we want to simplify you know and when we're younger we Things are very simple and they become more complicated. And I think there's a point of like um, recognition of that. And also maybe a little like uh, um, this is kind of what we asked for. You know, (laughs) we wanted our life to be a little more complicated. We wanted to be adults. But then once we get to a certain age as adults, we're like, wow, I would love for things to be simple again. Yeah, it reminds me of like first year university classes, like they often would say to us, like, you know, if first year, you know, you learn all the intro to your discipline and then like your second, third and fourth years, you learn why all of that was wrong and like way too simplified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's funny though. The more, you know, like you realize really the less that, you know, and that's even for me with fire, you know, like sometimes people refer to me as an expert or other things and. I just don't feel like that at all because every elder I talk to, like my mind just literally gets blown by like, like the other day I was talking to, uh, or not the other day, but this is like way pre-COVID, which sometimes feels like the other day, but they were saying <laughs> It's all that, a blur. I know. I gotta, yeah, time has gone um, crazy. But anyways, they were saying that the, uh, talking about using drip torches and how they used to do it like back in the 1800s and how they would you know, construct these drip torches and things. And like, I had never really, like I've heard of kind of, you know, moving fire around. Um, The Métis people actually had like fire bags or octopus bags where they would carry fire with them. But yeah, I had never heard of like, you know, that idea of a drip torch. Um, So anyways, it was just, yeah, I come constantly getting like my mind opened um, by elders. Mm -hmm. Real listeners know what a drip torch is, Cody? I don't think so. Would you mind explaining it? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So like right now in modern fire practice, you know, when we see crews out on the landscape doing a prescribed burn or doing like a back burn into a fire, they use kind of those metal canisters that basically drip fire onto the landscape. So basically they're they're dripping like kind of a mix of fuel that's lit um, on onto the landscape. And it's a nice I guess it's easy because it allows you to kind of like draw a line of fire. Um, without, you know, having to use matches on every mm-hmm. kind of small patch. Very so, quickly. Yeah. So indigenous people um, that I spoke with in BC, what they, um, so this was from the Shack and Indian Band and Hoiston Nation, both nations actually spoke about how they would construct their own drip torches. So this was like, um, this was their, gra- so it was elders I was speaking to now and their grandparents. So it would have been like kind of 
mid 1800s um, and so they would basically use long um, tree branches and then they would wrap them in a certain type of bark and then fill the end like those kind of the bowl on the end that they made with bark with pitch or sap from certain types of trees and then they light that um, the sap or the pitch on fire and it basically you know as it heats up it'll drip out um, fire into the grass and so that's what they would use to start um, and you know expand their fires is by dragging those along through the grass and then it often makes me wonder like you know is the modern drip torch a direct ripoff of you know what people saw indigenous <laughs> peoples doing and my guess would probably be yes yeah yeah in my experience I feel like that's how human ingenuity happens. You know, we see something in nature or we see another person or group of people doing it and we emulate it. Yeah. White people discover it. That's my thing. you say the goal of good fire is i mean for me when i started it i felt like myself and my colleagues you know were and i'm very biased i will say that we were doing some quite good work on um you know looking at uh knowledge around fire and how it could kind of assist in the current fire management kind of paradigm that we have right now but i will say that with like academic articles and like the things that we were doing to disseminate knowledge it just seemed to not be getting out there and at the time there wasn't the media interest kind of that we're seeing now and so you know i would spend a bunch of time you know do three years of research with the community write papers on it and they would maybe get like 20 downloads behind a paywall on like some journal's <laughs> website and so for me, that was really frustrating. And then I also, there was a lot about that I felt about like intellectual property and, you know, how we're taking Indigenous people's knowledge and then putting it like behind these journal paywalls that felt really weird so that, that you know, they couldn't even access their own knowledge unless they had a subscription or a copy of the PDF. Mm -hmm. And so I actually went to a presentation at the Fire Continuum Conference that was in Missoula, Montana. And there was um, a researcher there, I wish, I can't remember his name, um, but he was presenting, he was a researcher on firefighter, like health and fitness. And he, he was saying what he had started was um, basically a podcast for firefighters, because uh, he found as well that their academic papers weren't getting read that had recommendations for firefighters on how to, you know, improve their health and safety. So they had developed this podcast and they found that like the firefighters loved it because they could like listen to it when they were working out or doing other things. Um, 
and so they had gone from you know a few reads to like you know hundreds to thousands of listens on this podcast so when i came back i was like all gung-ho like yeah we're gonna do a podcast (laughs) um and my uh one of my colleagues actually had just been on your forest with matt Mm -hmm. and so i was totally naive i thought like oh yeah we'll just like you know plug in a microphone or like record a (laughs) record a phone call i had no idea like all the things that actually go into you know constructing a proper podcast (laughs) so it was great that i got hooked up um with matt in that way and yeah he's been able to really help me and and walk me uh through my naivety on this subject well and i could say the same thing for you too right like my my journey through this good fire podcast series and my relationship with you amy and with 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 other indigenous people in my life who since come into my life since the good fire podcast uh it's been one of really it's it was unexpected and it's really been a a way for me to rethink reevaluate nature and like the human relationship with nature in its entirety right Mm -hmm. and and how the colonial mindset differs from the indigenous mindset and how the indigenous mindset is so similar across the globe. And, and there must be some, some medium in which is a better way to do things. Right. And it's really, it's challenged everything. I mean, I think I spent, you can, if you listen to the whole series, I think people <laughs> that are attentive will, will recognize in me in, in the questions, like the quality of questions that I ask. So I've noticed them in myself. Um, the ignorance there and then that ignorance slowly dissipate into some kind of understanding some kind of realization because i really had no experience with it right and it's and this is the type of thing that i'm interested in like i naturally i would have been the one that found amy's paper and read it but i didn't for some reason right Mm -hmm. and so it's been a it's been a fascinating discovery for me and that it's really pushed my whole career in another direction that I, i i try to seek out those indigenous perspectives as as often as possible because I find there is a more holistic and more well thought out perspective there than I can otherwise find in the scientific community. So it's been it's been a journey for me and I think I'm still learning and I'm still definitely trying to figure out what decolonization looks like and what that means for our current system of government and all that kind of thing and and to really understand it. And so it's been nothing but constant learning. And it's, it's interesting that that podcast exists so people can document my lack of understanding to more understanding. <laughs> I think though, Matt, you totally reminded me though of a goal of mine, I guess, when we started this and that was almost to challenge the idea of who is the expert in fire management. Because yeah, I know yeah. when, yeah, when I'm, you know, lots of times meeting, like I sit on different national committees and other things. And, you know, I'll hear people say like, oh, well, yeah, Indigenous knowledge is great, but that's a myth. Or like, well, you know, they don't have the schooling that we have or, um, you know, well, they don't have, yeah, they don't have the certification that, you know, I have. And, you know, all these different kind of typical stereotypes that you run into. So now I can literally say like, oh, hey, uh, you should just go listen to Frank Lake's Good Fire episode, (laughs) you know, or you should go and listen to, you know, Don Hankins speak about fire or Vanessa Kavanaugh or, you know, some of the other, I mean, like Joe Gilchrist, who's on there. And uh, yeah, some of the other really amazing folks that we had. you know, some of them, like actually the, most of the people that we interviewed for that season, the first season of Good Fire were people that were more in the academic setting. So most did have PhDs or were, 
you know, working that way. But for this season, I think we're going to be interviewing um, more practitioners as well for season two. So people that Which you know, I'm might super not... nervous about, by the way, Why? <laughs> because it's that classic, like, I feel like with academics, I have some kind of common knowledge that I can like lean on, right. To have the conversations mm-hmm. and it's with, with, with elders and with people who are practitioners, like I'm not literally nervous, but you know, you're, you're nervous to be, you want to be an ally in a good way and you want to be you want to have the knowledge but it's always like i said before it's all a learning experience for me right so it's mm-hmm. like it's 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 nerve-wracking but super exciting and i can't wait for it because it's it's such an opportunity for me to learn and i can't i can't wait for it but mm-hmm. at the same time way more nervous than pe- speaking to people who i have a similar <laughs> background to <laughs> yeah no and it's totally understandable i mean but that you have a firefighting background though so i mean that's where most of these colonials people- yeah, colonial, colonial. firefighting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just so kidding. most of these people, that's like what, that's like one thing that you know we we're actually going to uh, talk about on season two is the role of indigenous firefighters, and you know that so we had kind of this system of, um, you know, pre-colonial where indigenous people were burning on the landscape, and then that whole idea of cultural severance where indigenous people were removed from fire. But then in, you know, the 1940s, 1950s, Indigenous people started getting forced into firefighting roles. And later it became like quite a, an important profession that many Indigenous people um, still remain incredibly proud of as they should be. Mm -hmm. Um, And they often don't get any attention. um, And lots don't get into higher level positions because they don't have that education that they could you know, qualify in an agency, but they have, you know, significant experience um, in working with fire. So yeah, we're going to get into that, I hope too, and really look at, you know, Indigenous firefighters and, and yeah, their their role and most of them now also really want to bring fire back and be involved as, as well in returning fire. What did the role of an Indigenous firefighter look like? Yeah, so in Canada, like in about the 1940s, 1950s, in at least where I'm from in Alberta, they enacted a bunch of legislation that, you know, if a lightning fire started or a fire, um, human caused fire got out of control, that kind of any people in the area like legally had to go and basically volunteer to fight that fire, um, like, like to help out. But Indigenous peoples and elders that I've talked to feel like they were unfairly targeted. Um compared to their non-Indigenous neighbors, uh, so that they would often be the ones who are rounded up to go on fire. And I've heard the same story in multiple different communities where um, the fire agency would literally pull up and then just round up Indigenous people um, to go fight the fire. And if they weren't willing, they would just put them in jail until the fire was out. Really? Yeah. And so that's what they started. Yeah, it's crazy. So that's what they started um, doing. So for Indigenous people, it was a really weird experience in northern Alberta because they went from, you know, using fire to now being told, you know, like, get out there and, you know, do these all these different things to put it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I should say, too, that these were like the high hazard fires, like in the summer months, um, like the the dangerous, the bad fires. So uh, so it, it went from that until then Indigenous people actually started kind of getting paid to do firefighting, but really low wages. And lots of them have told me that they would actually have to cash in their checks at like 
the local store in town or something and then often the store owner would take half their money anyways to you know cash the checks so mm-hmm. some of them were working for like you know i can't even remember i think the one guy said 1950s he was making maybe five cents an hour um out on the fire line all the time and uh indigenous people too would often be the ones that would just get dropped off in the bush somewhere um because of their knowledge and their ability to survive on the land um and firefighting and then in about the 70s and 80s it actually turned into quite a prominent career for indigenous people because it really supported their ability to be able to do fire um to do sorry cultural activities in the winter um and then they could go and make an income during doing firefighting in the summer and at that time fire camps like most of them were bush camps so it really was a nice kind of way of life for them and many families went it was men and women who were both um on the fire line and it became like a really proud tradition like in the one of the communities i worked with quite closely peavine metis settlement about 95 percent of the men um in the 1970s and 80s i would say were firefighters um and maybe 10 to 20 percent of the women had that experience and so their families all kept on with that. And it was, yeah, just a really proud, proud thing. But then in the 19, about 1995, Canada enacted some different, um, basically, uh, health and safety policies so that firefighters then had to pass certain safety, like fitness tests. And then it also became um uh, I would say like a choice of career for non-Indigenous people, especially for like um non-indigenous uh students so university students mostly and i mean like my husband was one of them matt was one of them who you know (laughs) yeah we're drawn to this kind of you know high adrenaline you know get out on the fire make a bunch of money in the summer and then you know go to your career um uh, after that like a totally different career and so indigenous people actually have started kind of uh the numbers of firefighters have really started dropping off um quite substantially in canada so sorry, that was a very long-winded history of everything you wanted to know about Indigenous firefighters. <laughs> Not at all. You know, I, um, I'm thinking about that, that term, firefighter, mm-hmm. and I wonder if because of colonization, and let me know if this is way off the mark, mm-hmm. but because of colonization, there was a mindset shift or a push for it to shift, which replaced something like working with or working alongside fire mm-hmm. with fighting the fire. Yeah, one of my colleagues, Matt Carroll, who's at in Washington, and another um, colleague who's in um, South Carolina, they talk about like, well, the one talks about like f- um, fire burner to firefighter, mm-hmm. that transition. And then the other one talks about like fire lighters to firefighters. <laughs> And, and how that kind of um, happened and impacted Indigenous peoples. But the thing that I've found is that in the some of the communities that I've worked with, there's been a real impact of that firefighting and suppression culture. There's some um, fire Indigenous firefighters, you know, who still really recognize the benefit of getting good fire back out on the land. But I would say that it's also really created a fear amongst many people. Uh, you know, that we need to put out fires and that that's, you know, what we need to do. And so in some communities, it's really split. Like some people really want to reintroduce fire and then other people are like, you know, too nervous and too scared because of what they've seen on the fire lines. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So yeah, it's really kind of yeah created a bit of a weird situation. And we actually just completed a study, which we're actually going to be talking about on Good Fire in season two, where we surveyed um, over 100 Indigenous firefighters in Canada who are current firefighters. And yeah, it was just amazing. They just love their jobs and they really go into it for reasons like protecting the landscape, protecting Mother Earth, helping my community, not like kind of these adrenaline filled roles that, you know, many of the welfare agencies advertise for. Mm -hmm. They really go into it, I think, for a bit of a, a different reason. But it was actually shocking to me how many love their jobs, but how many have experienced like full core racism on the fire line. Um, it's very common um, that Indigenous people, you know, have um, basically racism or harassment directed um, directly at them because um, they're Indigenous. And so hopefully, you know, by this study coming out and other things, we can begin to really, you know, spotlight some of those issues that are happening. Mm -hmm. hey, Cody, yeah, I wanted to hijack your podcast for half a second to ask Amy something that I think your listeners might want to know about. Um, and that is just the background into why we are in the wildfire situation that we are in today and, and how that compares to pre-colonial situation, just to provide some context. Yeah, let's do it. Amy? Sure, I'll give my, I'll give a very brief to try and do a two minute um, version. So yeah, I think, you know, when settlers first came to North America, they were really greeted kind of by these wide open forests. And I think what was really unknown at the time was that for many Indigenous people, like my colleague Frank Lake says, like those were their orchards, that was their agriculture, you know, their fields. Um, even though it might have looked like a forest to a settler, it was really, you know, where they, um, what sustained them, where, where they, you know, were, were able to live from. And as fire um, and so the the landscape ex in certain areas was much more patchy like um so right now you know especially i'm from in the boreal forest we just see these blankets of coniferous trees right now because of fire suppression activities but back like 100 150 years ago and science totally backs this up tree ring studies and other things um that there was pa there was patches or mosaics on the landscape where you would see you know meadows deciduous stands coniferous stands other things and what that does is it breaks up of like the fire um behavior or the fire's intensity as the fire is burning um and and can allow for fires to be more manageable to not get so extreme like what we're seeing now and so by removing um indigenous use of fire on the landscape to keep those meadows open to promote those you know, deciduous stands coming back, it's really created a fuel loading in our forest. And, you know, um, basically monocultures of trees where you're having, you know, um, spruce stands or pine stands or Douglas fir stands that are all the same age, um, some of them pretty old that are really um, rife for uh, basically pest disturbances like mountain pine beetle um, mm -hmm. and other things that then come and you know diminish the health of the forest and then fire also will take advantage of that so it's been yeah it's as an indigenous i think and that's been my sadness about seeing some of these things in bc happening like i'm currently doing a research project with first nations emergency services society in bc and we're working with six first nations and every single one of them has been evacuated this summer and these were all communities who actively want to revitalize cultural burning in their landscapes they actively you know felt that there was a need to bring back um 
fire practices uh, to, to reduce kind of their risk and for them to just be, you know, impacted this summer for months has just been so heartbreaking to see. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the other thing that, that maybe wasn't alluded to was your, uh, Amy was talking about just to add to it was the enactment of, of not just suppressing cultural burning, but so the fire suppression in general. Right. So I don't know the timeline, Amy can speak to it better, but we started just stopping all wildfires period. Right. So mm-hmm. we, we stopped having that natural disturbance on the landscape that would normally happen as well as stopping the cultural burning that would happen that would help to break up the landscape more. And that's pushed us to this spot where we have a lot of mature, arguably, depending on who you talk to a lot more mature forest than we should have. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is, which is ripe for burning and that kind of thing. So it speaks to the need and fire agencies know this as well, right. That the, things have changed and there's even stories, um, I spoke to Pat McCormick, who is a researcher, I forget which university she's at, but um, she was doing research around Wood Buffalo National Park and what that landscape used to look like up to 100 years ago. And right now it's totally forested boreal landscape, but it used to be a parkland. It used to be mostly mm-hmm. grassland with trees and because that's where there was a lot of bison, right? And since Indigenous people were kicked off the land and fires were, were stopped, everything, every single fire was stopped for whatever promotion of agriculture or, or, or timber or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, now we have the situation where we just have so much fuel and so much mature trees that we wouldn't otherwise have. So we're kind of in a spot where we have to deal with the problem we created for ourselves. Yeah. Lori Daniels and her lab out of UBC have just done some great studies too around the Williams Lake area, looking at tree rings and, you know, fire occurrence on the landscape and, you know, they found they can basically show you in their tree ring studies that fires were happening um, every two to five years in the area that they were working in. And so smaller fires that the trees were able to, you know, encounter and survive. Um, and then there was basically this um, period uh, from I think it was uh, the early 1900s where all of a sudden the fires just disappear out of the uh, like the fire scars just disappear out of the trees. And then, um, you know, lots of the trees are eventually killed and like, you know, stand devastating wildfires. So is this a situation where humans are overcorrecting and we're seeing the repercussions of that? Yeah, you know, I think it comes from almost this concept, too, of, you know, wilderness or like what is nature, what is natural. And mm-hmm. many like non-Indigenous people, I think, see themselves as being disconnected or separate from nature so that, you know, there's areas that should survive without humans. And I mean, the the creation of national parks or other things is one of the best examples of that, right, where we would remove fire um, from the park, remove people from the park. Mm-hmm like, you know, a natural wilderness area, whereas for Indigenous people, like we're in like intricately linked to those lands, like mm-hmm. humans are part of that, the the things there are our relatives, um, you can't just like people can't just be removed from that equation, and it still be a healthy uh, system. So I think that that's one of the the main issues is that we kind of had this idea for about 100 years, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that, you know, we needed to remove people. And I think that some people are sometimes the best stewards um, of these landscapes. Mm-hmm. I just did an episode on your forest about the philosophy of nature talking about exactly that concept and where it came from, right? And it, colonialization, obviously, industrial revolution, that kind of thing. We started to think of ourselves as 
well, Western society started to think of themselves as other than nature, right? And mm-hmm. yeah, it's an interesting topic to go into because like Amy points out, Indigenous people have been in North America since time immemorial, right? So 13 and a half to some people say 40,000 years they've been here. And in that time, they've interacted with and, and lived with the forest and, you know, for all that time. And so from my perspective anyways, and I'm sure from Amy's, that Indigenous people are an essential part of the ecological health of these areas, right? And mm-hmm. it's just because we happen to be conscious and we can create the internet and talk about it that we think that we're somehow different than it, right? But it's mm-hmm. it's it's a dangerous precedence to make, to come to nature with those preferences of, oh, it should be untouched by people kind of thing, right? It, we, we put ourselves in a different box entirely and it, yeah, you don't know what that's going to do. Yeah, and one thing too, I just wanted to mention quickly is that like there, like I sometimes think that I personally gloss over, you know, and kind of create maybe a happy utopia picture um, pre-colonization, right? But Indigenous people also experienced bad fires, like, you know, lightning caused fires, they experienced drought and other things. And so that was why they used fire, because um, fire was able to reduce their risk on the landscape to stop kind of those devastating uh, lightning caused fires that occur at the height of summer from impacting their communities so severely. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't have actual documentation of it or anything, but I'm sure that there were, you know, massive fires that that went through and and impacted Indigenous peoples terribly, um, you know, pre-colonization. But that is why, you know, they, I'm sure that, you know, our, our elders tell us that they use fire so frequently on the landscape was to try to stop that. Mm-hmm. Where do you think successful education on these issues starts? Yeah, good, good question. I, don't know, I, I would say just, I mean, that's a, that's the million dollar question, right? Or trillion dollar question is with every single topic that society struggles with, it's all the answer is always, well, we need to educate the public, right? And that's just an unfeasible thing to try to accomplish, right? But what we can do, I think, is we can try to inform the people that make the decisions like um one thing i read from from a guest who we're gonna have on the, the podcast by uh williamson that's his last name right amy mm-hmm. yeah that's yeah right. um something that he said was we don't need people to help us and to tell us like or to help us figure out what we need what we need them to do is to listen to us so we can help them know what they don't know mm-hmm. right and so it was a it, it it's a total, I don't know, like to, to try and educate people on this. I think you, what we need to do is just have these discussions more and more and just hopefully the right people hear it and try and push it the way Amy does and, and, and try to change it at the, at the agency level, I guess. Right. Cause I mean, trying to change or educate the entire public is just, like I said, that's the answer to technically all of our problems. Right. Which is, it's, <laughs> I don't know how you begin to do that. So it's, yeah. I, but I think you have to start with the people who have quote unquote, the power and, and try to change their mindset. Right. And, and start with the leadership and work your way down. Hopefully. I don't know. That's just my perspective, but Amy, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. I mean, bringing up by, I mean, he speaks often to this idea of perpetual grief that indigenous people feel. So He wrote like after the Australia um, 2020 bushfires, you know, that 
it's just like indigenous people are already going through so much grief and then to add on these layers of ecologic grief losing your landscape you know seeing it so heavily impacted and damaged by fire Mm -hmm. not being able to continue your cultural practices it just puts you in this constant state of grief that can be really overwhelming and I think that's for me almost where these messages of good fire have really kind of sprung from where people have gotten you know especially indigenous people I think more and more are coming forward and just saying kind of like enough (laughs) like you know they I've gotten so many messages from people that are like you know okay yeah we need good fire back on the landscape like what can we do how can we help So there's definitely, like Matt was saying, that component of, you know, we need senior leadership people. And I've seen systems like in the state of Victoria, where, you know, it was a very high up senior guy who just suddenly said, you know, yeah, we're going to do cultural burning now and support communities to be able to do it. And like, now that's what they do. Mm -hmm. Like all of a sudden, all the policies and other things just fell into place to allow that. So we definitely need that. But we also kind of need just the general public, I think, to have just a a general understanding of what cultural burning is. And we're living in this state right now where there is just such a fear of fire. So many of the nations that I'm working with in BC, like even now when they're trying to put good fire on the landscape, they're just getting constant people reporting them, you know, like, oh my goodness, there's a fire Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the landscape, like come put it out. Then the wildfire agencies come flying in and, you know, it's just... Yeah, so I think that we need also to just educate the general public as well, you know, what is good fire. And I think that, you know, there's been a lot of media interest this summer in it. There's like the podcast we have out um, a new. uh, So in Canada, we have like the Fire Smart Canada program, which is like kind of our national wildfire mitigation program. And um, I brought together a group of Indigenous authors who wrote a book called or not a book. It's like 50 pages called Blazing the Trail, Celebrating Indigenous Fire Stewardship where it just generically like kind of looks at, okay, what's good fire? Like how are communities using this? And so I think it's products like that too, that we can easily distribute to classrooms, um, you know, to people that are maybe sitting in like a doctor's office or something, Mm -hmm. looking for something to read. Like those are the the ways that we can kind of get this message out. Mm -hmm. Just get it out any way and every way you can, I suppose. Yeah. Was there a point or something that happened in your life that ultimately made you decide to cover this issue in a formal, structured way, like a podcast? Yeah, you want to go first, Matt? Sure, I can try. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I think growing up, I grew up in northern Alberta uh, in, in a town called Lesser Slave Lake. And well, the town's called Slave Lake. The lake's called Lesser Slave Lake. But anyways, that's not important. <laughs> I was going to say, where's Lesser Slave Lake? <laughs> <laughs> well, Great Slave Lake is up by up by you guys, by Alaska. But um, anyways, I uh, I grew up with a lot of Indigenous friends and, and Indigenous people in my in my neighborhood and that kind of thing. And, and we were fortunate enough to see a lot of cultural experiences and, um, you know, hoop dances and that kind of thing. And But as a kid, I think because it was so normal for me, and there, it was there was a lot of racism and like myself included in that in that lack of understanding, um, you know the the classic terrible trope that you hear that like oh that you know uh, drunks and alcoholics and 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 just want the welfare check kind of crap right all that you kind of grow up with those tropes, and as a child I remember always kind of I, I was definitely fell victim to them and I'm probably I'm sure I held some of those tropes but. 
as a child, I also recognized, I was like, this is really messed up. And I, I, I feel like there's more to this story. And as, as I grew up, um, I just kind of kept my ears open and, and tried to listen and try to hear people's stories. And then my wife really helped me a lot. Uh, she's a psychologist. And so she helped me develop that empathy required to maybe understand those social situations and understand the history and that kind of thing. And then when the podcast happened, I think I felt the need to like in forestry in, in, in Canada and, and I'm sure Alaska is very similar. There's a lot of focus on sustainability and doing things right and involving all values, not just timber values, but including watershed and biodiversity and indigenous values are one of those things, but they're one of, they're the only value in my opinion, that is almost completely ignored. And I don't mean that purposefully. Like I think industry tries they do try to, but they don't know how to do it. So it always falls flat on its face. And so I felt a need when I started the podcast to try to provide an opportunity for indigenous people to tell that story a little bit. And then when Amy approached me to do cultural burning stuff, I was, I was super excited, like just beyond excited. Cause I didn't even know what it was, but I knew this was something I wanted to be involved with. Cause it's, it's kind of the last, the last group of, of, of people in Canada that are, like, I mean, there's still a lot of marginalization and racism, but you know what I mean? The last people who are really behind the line when it comes to standard of living and that kind of thing. And I felt if we can't support these people out of this, then we have no right talking about these other values, right? Because in the mm -hmm. end of the day, if these social values aren't equalized, then, then then what right do we have to talk about what we're going to do with that forest that they depend on when they can't even feed themselves or get clean water? So I just, I think I always felt as an adult, as I grew out of that, those racist ideas and that kind of thing, I always felt the desire to want to help and be an ally in some way. And I think that's only grown. And yeah, so it's the opportunities I've been fortunate enough to to meet up with Amy and, and Fabian Gray and Michael Gobbles and, and other people in my life that have taught me a lot and have changed my perspective. And it's just been awesome. I could be more thankful. Yeah. So I think for me, I'm like mad. I actually grew up in Northern Alberta and I, in my community, you know, fire was just kind of part of life. Um, I, I actually grew up kind of more in, uh, even though I'm Métis, I grew up in much more of like a non-Indigenous setting. I think I was kind of at the time where Métis or, um, you know, or First Nations, m lots of people tried to kind of hide or get away from that part. And my grandmother um, had left our community of, of Fort McMurray um, and tried to try to, you know, disappear kind of into the crowd to, I think, escape kind of the residential schools and other things. Um, and anyway, so I but I experienced fire a lot um, and saw, you know, a lot of firefighters in my community. In 1998, my community was threatened by the Virginia Hills fire, which was one of our big kind of fires in Alberta, similar to actually what we're seeing kind of in BC, you know, where the sky was black and it was pretty mm -hmm. freaky. <laughs> so um, for me, that really kind of piqued my interest, but I actually, it didn't, I went away from fire. Um, I always loved hazards, but I didn't want to do anything um with fire and i think it was because it was just kind of such a part of my life that i wanted a break i don't know mm -hmm. to do something different so i went to um new zealand actually to study volcanic hazard management but always felt this need to kind of come back like i feel like in a way that i'm just kind of bound to the forest 
And for me, it's just been a great opportunity to kind of relearn by, like I was saying, my privileged position here um, of being able to uh, speak with elders and other peoples who, you know, didn't leave behind that tradition and, you know, kept trying to do their cultural practices on the land. So for me, it's been like a real kind of reclaiming of my my family in that way. But mm -hmm. I think also like with this privilege that I've been awarded, like it also comes with great responsibility. And I often feel the weight of that a lot. And I think by creating the podcast, it was one way for me to kind of share, I think, with other people. So people like myself who might be, you know, reconnecting or relearning, um, you know, other Indigenous people who just need like a pat on the back that like, yeah, what you were doing was right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here's all these great experts talking about, about it or for people that are just trying to learn. So that really kind of yeah, when I heard about podcasting and the idea of getting it out there in like, you know, a free accessible way to people, it really, um, yeah, grabbed my interest. And yeah, I guess now there's no looking back. Although I always say to Matt, I really wish I would have like taken, because now like when we first recorded it, I was like, oh yeah, a few people will listen to it. And now I'm like, oh my goodness, I should have like <laughs> learned not to say like so much or and or yeah, anyways, you like you said, you hear all kind of the flaws in how you speak and communicate. <laughs> I noticed the same thing in the latest, when you did the ologies episode and they took those clips from the episode that we did together. And most of all you could hear of me is just, yeah, uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's terrible. That is terrible. And yeah. I, so you're not alone in that, Amy. <laughs> We've both grown. <laughs> You know what I find really helpful is uh, my wife listens to all of my podcasts and um, the things that irk me the most, she recognizes the least. And oh, so it's it's just a matter of, you know, we're all going to be much more critical of ourselves with kind of shallow things like that, you know, saying like or mm -hmm. saying huh, or mm-hmm, or, you know, little indicators that, you know, as a host, we're listening, which to me, you know, the more that I've, I've done my research into this and listened to other podcasts and dialed into what I appreciate about those ones that I do like, it is those things, you know, it is little indications that the host is listening, that they're active, that they're present in the conversation, rather than just kind of recording, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They just ask a question and then disappear. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions about wildland fire management? Well, I think lots of times I hear from people, you know, well, like when we, for example, have these bad fires, lots of times people will say like, oh, well, at least we're getting fire on the landscape <laughs> or like, you know, I've seen before when they'll be doing planned ignition or, you know, a backburn into a fire to kind of stop it from going into a community, they'll be saying like, oh, well, this will help us meet like our ecologic goals or whatever for returning fire to the landscape. And mm -hmm. for me, I just get so frustrated with that because it's like there are different types of fire, like the Cree language has, I think, like 50 words for fire. Um, depending on, you know, the different ways it burns, the different intensities, how you do it, what, what techniques you use. So you can't just say, you know, we're returning fire um, to the landscape by using these kind of bad big fire events. Because for many, they're devastating to the biodiversity. Um, 
to humans as well. Uh, so that's, I think, one of the misconceptions that I hear a lot, you know, and sometimes there was also where they were doing, um, because some people would have, you know, well, we need to burn this much acreage or whatever in um, a certain amount of time. So then they would say like, oh, yeah, or, you know, well, we had this much burn naturally. So we'll just tick that off as counting towards mm -hmm. the prescribed burn target. And it's like, yeah, no, like, that's not the same as doing a cultural burn on the landscape. Um, for cultural burning, like it's low intensity, you're trying to kind of keep and promote those big, large trees. You're not trying to get crown fires. You're trying to just, you're trying to keep the roots of plants. Like you're trying to burn in a perfect way, basically, where, mm -hmm. you know, you're burning a berry bush where you're, you know, killing all the dead things on the berry bush, but keeping the roots alive and healthy. And um, some of my colleagues are doing research in the, the North Boreal right now. And they're finding that some of these fires are burning so hot that they're literally just obliterating the soil. Like, I don't know how else to say it, but mm -hmm. it's basically turning um, the forest into desert. And it's like, if things even do regrow there, it's going to be such like a long time, basically, you know, maybe not even like seven generations from now. So I think that that's, you know, one of these misconceptions that I hear often is just, you know, that you can treat fire as this one generic thing on the landscape when really there's a lot of different types of fire. In your mind, what are the most pressing concerns in wildland fire management today? Yeah, you know, I'm a bit concerned, like just because of how bad these current fire situations have been. Uh, for us this summer, you know, and the smoke impacts and other things that we're really going to quickly get back into this, you know, putting out all fires, um, that kind of 10 a.m. rule that was um, that we had for a while. And I've actually seen, you know, in California and other places, I think the U.S. Forest Service has just adopted kind of a new policy of, you know, full fire suppression again. So for me, that's one concern because then we're moving again from this whole idea of, you know, fire on the landscape is is bad. Um, and, you know, cultural fire is not like we were saying, it's something that can be useful and helpful um, to to our relatives. So I think mm -hmm. that that's kind of one thing that that, you know, is a bit worrying is just kind of seeing that backtracking. Another thing I would say, you know, from our research is that there's very little money spent on um, like prevention or mitigation. So lots of times communities kind of have to cobble together and apply for, you know, really small pockets of money. Um, and even with cultural burning, like some of the groups that I'm working with, like they basically have no money to host um, like a workshop or, you know, to bring in um, their knowledge keepers or other things like it's basically just scraping by, whereas we see massive amounts of money being spent on fire suppression activities. And I think, too, um, you know, that there is like lots of times um, politicians will come out with, you know, oh, we'll hire more firefighters, get more airplanes, you know, kind of that whole move to kind of uh, assage, is that a word? The public's fear of fire, mm -hmm. um, where really we need to be really shifting how we're spending money um, on fire. And I think we've had multiple studies that point to that, to the importance of, you know, prevention and mitigation practices and cultural burning, you know, falls into that um, and supporting Indigenous people to getting healthy fire um, around their communities. So yeah, I think that's two. I'll see if I can think of any more as we go. <laughs> you know, 
What differences in wildfire management are you aware of between Canada and the U.S.? Yeah, well, the one thing is that there is, I'd say that the U.S. is um, more complex jurisdictionally, like they have they have all these different agencies and i remember being in oregon and we were on a study there and someone brought out a map of like all the um jurisdiction like on the um like and that was shown on the map and i was like oh my goodness because mm -hmm. in canada we basically have like communities or municipalities um you know reserves but then crown land makes up a huge um, portion of our land mass so that's actually you know fully under the jurisdiction of provincial wildfire management agencies so i would say in that way you would think in canada that it would be less complex to try to manage fire but um we're finding still that there's a lot of difficulties mm -hmm. in, in fire um but i would say that many of the community even in the states though it's so diverse like in the southeastern states i know that they use fire a lot on the landscape down there like there's big prescribed burn councils and um yeah they burn a lot and then you know if you look at maybe the northwest or california those places they don't burn nearly as much even though they want to so i would say that maybe they're more similar to us in canada do one of those systems between the u.s and canada seem like they're more beneficial or they work better than the other? You know, I think it's so localized, unfortunately, and I know that's the answer. <laughs> it's like harder to hear, but the, yeah, that there is, you know, and I hate saying that there's no one size fits all because it seems like that's what everybody says, but it's really kind of what we found with our research is based on like the local like the local scene like what's happening locally the mm -hmm. values the people there the landscapes um it is really the important thing but we've seen fire really become centralized uh so like for example where i am in alberta you know most of the fire like the the biggest part of probably the welfare management agency is actually in an urban center um you know and that's where they kind of make decisions and everything about funding and other things that happen on the landscape and there are regional offices and i would say that the regional offices are often you know more in touch with um you know kind of the local communities and what's happening but it this kind of centralization of fire has re has really um yeah become weird and i think that that just speaks to like colonization it seems mm -hmm. like yeah that centralization and colonization pretty much go together where you put things into urban centers and have certain people making decisions that impact people very far away from them mm -hmm. when both of you consider all of the conversations you've had and all of the historical and cultural importance importances of wildfires, what conversations do you think should be more public and more common? And who should be at the table who is currently not? Um, I think, yeah, like that's, we talked about that in a few episodes, right? About uh, this idea of, like Amy was saying, um, agencies want to integrate cultural burning into their system, right? Whereas that's not what indigenous people are, are asking for, right? What they're asking for is the autonomy to do what they would normally do without the repercussions of being put in prison or whatever, because there's just this lack of understanding of like the expert, like we were talking about, right? Like just a misunderstanding of who's the actual expert here. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't know. I think I think the, I, I'm not in that world of, of dealing with agencies and, and 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 trying to navigate it the way Amy is. But it seems like I think I think there's a lot of good intentions in, in, in some of those agencies and that they want to be on the right side of history kind of thing. Right. But they don't even have the basic knowledge to help them navigate that situation. Mm-hmm. Right. Just the basic understanding of, of how, of even just the social dynamics, right. Of how indigenous people have been impacted by things like residential schools and that kind of thing across the last hundred years. And I, I think they lack the basic understanding to do some of that. And therefore it kind of falls on its face and then and colonialism and the centralization of power is, yeah, like that's such a, it's not even an idea. Like I said earlier, it's not an idea I've ever even considered to challenge. It was just part of my reality. And it was an assumption that I had that didn't even, that never got challenged. So to be able to, I had to listen to whatever it was, 15 to 20 hours of indigenous people talking about decentralization of power before it clicked (laughs) for me. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think, I think people want to be on the right side of history. They want to help. They want to, they want to help with this solution and, and be a part of the solution in a good way. But I don't think they even know how, which is why we need to start having these conversations. Right. And I think, yeah, I think indigenous people definitely should be at the table and definitely should be leading a lot of these fires and, 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 they should be leading the prescribed fires that that aren't happening as much as they should be and that kind of thing. And they can do it in a cultural way that, that both benefits the culture and has the, you know, the fuel reduction and the environmental ecological, healthy integrity thing going on along with it. Right. So it's, I, I it's, it's a hard one. Cause it's a, it's an entire, you have to shift the entire social structure. And I, I but I think we're, I think we're getting there though. And I, this is coming from someone who's not directly involved with it, but just kind of sees it on the sidelines. But from listening to what's happening, all the cool things that are happening in Australia with fire sticks and that kind of thing, and and all of the the forward momentum when it comes to cultural burning, getting it back on the landscape, it seems like that that reality is coming to fruition. Thankfully, so it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think just to add to what Matt said, like the the problem is not with like individual people. Like I find, like I work with a lot of different people across Canada and they're you know kind people that you know or want to do the best for society like nobody wants to have these massive fire events mm-hmm. that we're seeing um but they're in the systems that we're all working in there's a lot of systemic racism at play like you know kind of that institutional racism mm-hmm. where you know there's kind of one idea that's the way um so like western science for example or you know um like all around kind of election promises or other things like that. And I think that that really hinders people's ability, you know, to do what they want to do or, you know, what they think um, is is right. So people kind of get, yeah, hamstrung a little bit in these positions where they just can't, can't do anything. And I think, you know, we see that in multiple things, but uh, fire especially. So like an example is kind of the, the burning uh, pr- procedures in BC, so yeah, most of the regional people that we talk to with the nations that we work with want to put fire back on the landscape and to support Indigenous people in doing that. But, you know, in their jobs, they have to check certain boxes and they have to have certain forms filled out and they have to have, you know, different safety protocols met. And the, so there's all sorts of things basically that stand kind of in the way barriers that are in play. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so those are kind of the big questions is how do we address them? And, 
you know, where there's, I think in Canada, we're going to, we have a few different groups that are hopefully going to be forming kind of a national Indigenous fire kind of working group um, to come together to kind of start pushing some of these issues to the forefront. Because mm-hmm. in the past, like, it's kind of been individual nations going up and, you know, having their kind of battle and then they'll either, um, you know, just something else will come up and they'll have to leave the fire battle behind. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's been so much frustration lately that we just finished um, a bunch of different engagement sessions with communities across Canada and moving forward and what do we do? And that was one of the things that came forward was forming kind of these this national group where we can really push some of these issues and um, hopefully make changes for the better. Uh, I'm not like as positive as Matt. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like we, you know, there are really good things happening, but then, you know, I'll feel like we're making, you know, 10 steps ahead and then, you know, be slammed back 15 steps because <laughs> of something. So that gets frustrating over time. Uh, But yeah, I mean, all that we can continue to do is kind of try to keep pushing forward and supporting the fire practitioners who are on the ground and like our um, elders and fire knowledge holders. Like I said, it's easy for me to sit from my point of privilege and be like, yeah, I think it's going in a good direction. I think we're Yeah, no, but you know what, Matt, it is. I think like you're right, like five years ago, 10 years ago, like when I started my job, you would never have seen like, you know, the national news interest and all the other things that we're seeing now. And yeah. I think all these major fire events are forcing people to to look at that. So in a way like that's been good. But for me, it's more like because it's all about power, right? So mm-hmm. people are going to have to give up power for Indigenous people to be able to come back in fire. And, you know, historically, in <laughs> multiple instances, power is not easy for people to give. So, um, you know, power that they hold. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what happens. What would you say to someone listening to this who might be interested in supporting healthy relationships to the land, to the land they live on? Yeah. So I think the most important thing to start, you know, is it's important, you know, to look at the territory that you're on. So, you know, wherever you're listening from, there's different things. Like I think it's like native dash land.ca And if you go on that website, you can see like whose territory, um, you know, you're currently residing in. And then you can start to kind of look at those different groups. So, for example, like um, the Métis Nation, you know, Mm -hmm. you can go on the Métis National Council website and look at, you know, what they're doing in terms of environment and other things. I think the issue is, you know, I get a lot of people that are like, you know, oh, I want to study this now, like non-Indigenous people, you know, I want to. I want to, you know, study this, I want to support this, but then they start to kind of take over. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. But I think like what the most important thing is, you know, using the power and privilege that you have basically to push indig- indigenous groups forward that have already been trying to do this fight for years. <laughs> and, you know, instead using that to kind of to help lift them up. So, you know, in Alaska, for example, I know that there, you know, are indigenous groups there that have used fire, um, and, you know, it's, yeah, I don't know as much about exactly what's occurring on the landscape, but from the studies I've seen, you know, fire was an important part of many of the nations up there. And so that's one thing, you know, is um, even reaching out to kind of a local politician or something and, uh, and saying, you know, has cultural burning been considered? What are we doing to support it? Um, 
but yeah, there's all sorts of different things that, that people can do. Um, and I think the biggest thing is maybe even just educating yourself. And then, you know, if you're in meetings or other things where people are, um, you know, like Matt said, like where you all kind of come from these areas where there's just kind of embedded racism and, you know, speaking up against, against some of the things that you hear. One of the common myths that I often hear is, you know, indigenous people start fires for money. <laughs> like mm -hmm. Those are the type really? of things, yeah, that by educating yourself, you know, you can directly start countering um, kind of those false narratives. That was a common narrative in, in wildland firefighting that you would hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, there's a lot. There's a lot of that. That indigenous people would start fires for money. Yeah, because many were employed as indigenous firefighters. So if it would be like a slow fire year, lots of times there would be accusations that indigenous people would, you know, go out around their community and set fires on the landscape purposefully to get firefighting employment. Um, and that, uh, yeah, and so there was also rumors that, you know, suddenly communities wouldn't um, be allowed to fight fires around their community anymore. They always had to kind of be sent away to fight fires to kind of stem that from happening. Mm -hmm. But I mean, for one, it looks at it like there's never been any proof that that's actually ever happened. <laughs> and then the other thing is that, I mean, even if something like that is happening where somebody's lighting a fire, to get employment so that they can live like you really have to look at the underlying social issues you know why are people feeling that they have to act you know or do that to be able to live and survive right mm -hmm. like it gets it at a lot bigger issues mm -hmm. yeah I, and for me i think to answer your question cody about like what what should people do that want to live more I can't remember how you worded it harmoniously or just more thoughtfully within the landscape and that kind of thing. Or mm -hmm. I think it's, it's like, for me, it's just a journey in, in, in learning and most importantly, challenging your assumptions. Cause I think we all have, we all come to nature with preferences, what we think is supposed to be there. And I don't think any of us really have an accurate picture except for maybe like indigenous people who have that, that, you know, that carried heritage that's been passed down generation to generation of what that relationship to nature should look like in a balanced system. I don't think any of us in the, in the Western society really knows what a balanced ecology really is supposed to look like because we've had such a impact on the way it looks. So we all want big old trees and to us, that's the epitome of, of nature and that kind of thing. But we also need everything from grasslands to that big tree right we need everything and so i think i just encourage people to constantly challenge your own assumptions constantly learn and if you think you know something be open to finding out that that is wrong or at least not in context and that you maybe need to to reassess it that kind of thing right so i think mm -hmm. anytime i find myself for myself anyways anytime i find myself having an emotional response to something someone is saying that's an immediate alert for me that like, Hey, you're about to act irrationally. <laughs> There's something here that you believe is a core belief and you have to now go back and assess the, why mm -hmm. you were going to respond in a, you know, irrational or, or emotional way. Not to say that we should ignore emotion. I'm just saying, why am I holding on to something so firmly that I'm going to get mad about it when it doesn't actually directly affect me. Right. So it's, it's just a matter of, of being open to criticism, being open to changing our ideas 
and and open to other perspectives and and just trying to seek that ultimate truth i guess if you want to put it that way you know amy and matt that does it for my questions this has really been like a mixture of uh me feeling really honored to talk to both of you about this and education. You know, I feel like I learned a lot. Awesome. That's, that's the whole point, I guess, right? That's what we're trying <laughs> to accomplish here. So let's do that. That's good. That's good to hear. Exactly. <laughs> For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keezy Baby. <laughs>